Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. If anyone has ever told you that the war on drugs has ended, they were lying to you. The fact is that drug policies at the state and federal level are still rooted in prohibition and centered on punishment. This in spite of the fact that those policies have been miserable failures for decades. This is true even in Oregon. Sure, we passed a measure that lowered the penalty and criminal classification of small-scale possession of some drugs, but people who use drugs are still criminalized. I mean, let's be blunt, possession decrim is nothing but a minor fix to our current broken system to help it limp along a little farther. And it's not like the drug warriors gave up just because they got beaten so soundly. The same people who opposed Measure 110 in the 2020 general election are still using the same tired arguments to oppose it now in 2023. You know, which is not surprising. I worked on the Oregon Marijuana Initiative, which was ballot measure five in the 1986 election cycle. And we got beat. Heck, we got stomped. But we didn't give up. We never give up. I was thinking recently about the 1980s and the drug war demagogues on Capitol Hill back in those days. And the truly awful laws that they enacted. We're still paying the price for those. I was thinking about those days because the demagoguery never stopped and it's rearing its ugly head again. On May 25th, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Halt All Lethal Trafficking of Fentanyl Act, H.R. 467. This bill expands mandatory minimums for fentanyl analog cases and permanently schedules all fentanyl-related substances as Schedule 1 without first testing them for benefits or harm. Unlike other permanent scheduling bills considered by Congress this session, the HALT Fentanyl Act also includes no off-ramp provisions that would permit analogs to be descheduled if they're later found to be harmless or inert. To learn more about H.R. 467, I spoke recently with Liz Komar, Sentencing Reform Counsel at The Sentencing Project. Uh, My name's Liz Komar. I'm Sentencing Reform Counsel at The Sentencing Project. That means I'm an attorney by training. I work mostly on our federal advocacy as part of our campaign to end life imprisonment. Now, I asked you on to talk about a piece of federal legislation that's currently in Congress, and, and we'll get to that in a moment. I'm familiar with the Sentencing Project from my work on drug policy. I knew your former director, Mark Maurer. I know the Sentencing Project does amazing, vital work, and has for a long time. For the benefit of listeners who haven't spent the last 40 years working on drug control policy, could you tell us about the Sentencing Project a little bit? Sure. So the Sentencing Project is a 30-plus-year-old organization um, that engages in research and advocacy to promote effective and humane responses to crime that minimize imprisonment and the criminalization of youth and adults while promoting racial, ethnic, economic, and gender justice. I saw in your bio that you worked as an assistant district attorney in New York for a time. 
Um, what led you to work on sentencing reform? Sure. So I think my path to the DA's office was uh, increasingly common, but a typical one at the time in that um, I decided to apply to be an ADA after Ken Thompson um, ran for the office of DA in Brooklyn. He was Brooklyn's first black district attorney. He ran on a reform platform. And at that time, he was really the first, quote unquote, progressive prosecutor. Um, even though that term has a lot of limitations. And so I was interested in being a part of the way that he wanted to re-envision prosecution. Um, prosecutors have a lot of discretionary power, uh, and I was interested in using that for good. I wasn't a prosecutor for very long. There's still a lot of limitations in the justice one can do in that role, and I am ultimately much better at policy than litigation anyway. Um, so it was a natural transition from there to a nonprofit that works with reform-minded prosecutors um, on how they can be a part of ending mass incarceration, and then from there over to the sentencing project. So now let's get to this federal legislation. It's um, it's HR four six seven, the Halt Act. Halt stands for Halt All Lethal Trafficking of Fentanyl. Uh, tell me about the Halt Act. Sure. So I think it's probably good to back up and give a little bit of background on fentanyl analogs and fentanyl analog scheduling, because that's what the HALT Act is about. Um, so there's been a lot of misleading press and statements in Congress around fentanyl over the last few years. The fentanyl is scheduled. It's a Schedule II drug. Um, at no point has anybody uh, wanted to deschedule it or have Democrats, uh, you know, been opposed to the scheduling of fentanyl. What we're talking about are fentanyl analogs, which are substances which are similar to fentanyl at a chemical level. They look like fentanyl um, when you look at the molecular structure. Not all of them have the same effect. It's possible for something to be a fentanyl analog while not having the same um, harmful impact on the body while not having addictive potential, while even potentially um, being helpful as a treatment tool. And so what this bill engages with is something called um, class-wide scheduling. And class-wide scheduling of fentanyl analogs first began in 2018. The DEA under the Trump administration used its statutory authority to schedule all fentanyl analogs as schedule one drugs for two years in 2018. And Congress has kept extending that temporary scheduling while expressing a strong interest in scheduling analogs permanently. An important thing to know is that uh, it's not the case that we can't prosecute people for trafficking fentanyl analogs right now. We have something called the Federal Analog Act, um, which is the means through which prosecutors um, can establish um, that and an individual is selling something that is very similar to fentanyl that may not itself be explicitly scheduled. They have to go through a scientific process of essentially showing that it it's harmful. The class-wide scheduling means that prosecutors don't have to go through that process when they're attempting to charge someone with the crime of trafficking a fentanyl analog. It means that they can just say, well, it is a uh, similar to fentanyl on this molecular level, and therefore it's a Schedule One drug. So what the HALT Act does is permanently place uh, all fentanyl analogs on Schedule One 
um, without any important fail safes, like the ability to pull something off of schedule one, if it turns out to be inert or harmless. Um, and it also expands mandatory minimums by uh, doubling down on a failed policy and punishing people who have analogs more harshly uh, than some other drugs. And so Unfortunately, this is a bill that has already passed through the House. And at this point, we're at the stage of figuring out how to stop it in the Senate. Well, that is the um, that is my next question. How can we stop it? I, I saw that it's been assigned to the judiciary. Yes, that's the committee of jurisdiction. Uh, and so I think if people are interested in drug policy, it's important for them to communicate to their legislators that they want real solutions. Because that's that's the trouble with doubling down on mandatory minimums and class-wide scheduling, is that we know it doesn't save lives. Uh, if it worked, we wouldn't have our highest year of overdoses yet. Uh, and so people can reach out to their legislators and encourage them to support things like harm reduction, not expanding mandatory minimums or criminalization. I'm sure that our loyal listeners, certainly folks who listen to the show via podcast and uh, regular listeners, know that mandatory minimums and lengthy sentences don't work. They don't do the job that they're supposed to. Um, but for the benefit of anyone else who may be tuning in, could you could you expand on that? Sure. So I think there's there's two helpful things to keep in mind when you're thinking about whether what we've learned about mandatory minimums and the first set of items have to do with criminology and what we know deters people from committing crime. The theory behind mandatory minimums is that we're threatening people with a much harsher punishment so they'll be less likely to do the offense. Unfortunately, we know from research that that's just not really how people think when they're considering whether to engage in a crime. Um, what we know instead is that certainty matters a lot more than severity. So whether or not somebody uh, thinks that they will be arrested and prosecuted and convicted matters a lot more than the harshness of a punishment. Extending punishment doesn't really have any impact on reducing the likelihood of an offense. Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of real world tragic knowledge that we've gained about the impact of mandatory minimums, particularly in the realm of drug crimes. And so we can look back at the 80s and 90s uh, at the way that Congress treated crack cocaine uh, and see the impact of mandatory minimums there. Uh, and the reality of mandatory minimums is that they end up sweeping a lot of individuals who are using drugs and then selling those drugs in order to address their own substance use disorder into the criminal legal system. They subject them to really harsh punishments. And those people are disproportionately black and brown, especially in the context of crack cocaine, where Congress decided to treat crack radically different than powder, subject it to much harsher mandatory minimum sentences, uh, in part because Congress was aware that it was predominantly used by Black communities. Um, and, and so the result of that incredibly notorious racist disparity uh, between crack and powder mandatory minimums um, was deep, deep racial disparities in the federal criminal legal system that also trickled down to the state level. And then meanwhile, 
not making communities safer. Uh, instead of preventing overdoses or interrupting cycles of substance use, we saw families destroyed. Uh, we saw communities increasingly disinvested from uh, just cycles of poverty and harm and trauma. So we know what happens when we expand mandatory minimums. Uh, that's something that there's generally a lot of bipartisan understanding uh, among people who care about smart sentencing. Unfortunately, I think the, the level of concern, valid concern that people have about fentanyl and fentanyl analogs is prompting them to ignore lessons of the past because they're desperate for solutions. And you can understand the desperation, as you mentioned, over 100,000 um, deaths due to the toxic drug supply and overdose in 2022. There were over 100,000 deaths due to the toxic drug supply and overdose in 2021 as well. And, you know, 30 years ago, we were talking about 10, 20,000 deaths due yeah. to that. And it's, um, yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, and it's scary. Yeah, it's chilling. I'm I'm from the Rust Belt, so I think like most people there, I don't know anyone who hasn't been touched by overdoses in some way. Um, it's really important that we invest in solutions like harm reduction, um, and and that's part of the harm of bills like this is that it's leaning into things that we don't we know don't work instead of investing in things that save lives. This is my conversation with Liz Comar, Sentencing Reform Counsel at The Sentencing Project. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. There's a project you work on at The Sentencing Project that I want to find out more about. And in fact, when I was reading about it, I I almost wanted to change the topic to this. And we could talk a little bit about this bill. But the, the, this HALT Act is important, so I'm glad we're focused on that. But having said that... Could you tell us about the campaign to end life imprisonment? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for that question. This is an important way that it's a framework we use to think about a lot of our work on extreme sentencing at the sentencing project. Um, life imprisonment, I think, is best known by its other name, which is death by incarceration. It's a profound harm. It's incredibly racist, given the racial disparities that permeate it. Um, which are more severe in some states and systems than others. Um, and it's also totally devoid of roots in, in actual criminological research, um, because the reality of how people commit crime is that people age out of offending as they get older. There's a, a natural life cycle of criminal activity called the age crime curve. Um, which I think most people understand from a common sense perspective, that when you're in your 20s, uh, people tend to be more rash, they have less things keeping them stable in life. Uh, but then as you age and mature and develop family ties, you kind of naturally uh, cease to engage in harm for the vast majority of cases. And, and that's true even of people who engage in serious crimes. Uh, and when we lock someone up for their entire natural life, we ignore that wealth of evidence about how people can be rehabilitated, about how almost everyone is capable of reduction. And I, I offer that almost anyone because 
there's going to be an incredibly small minority of people who, after 20 years of imprisonment, may not be ready to re-enter the community. I think there are countries like Germany and Norway who offer more humane ways to address that tiny, tiny population uh, through systems like preventative detention at the end of a long sentence if someone is still a very, very clear threat to the community. But the reality is those people are, are such a tiny sliver of the population of people behind bars that after 20 years of imprisonment, the evidence is pretty clear that almost everybody would be safe to come home. And, and most people should have sentences far, far shorter than that. And so our campaign to end life imprisonment really lefts up the, the cruelty and injustice and lack of necessity of life imprisonment and urges uh, policymakers instead to think about following the model of countries like Germany and Norway and capping sentences at 20 years, adjusting the sentences for less serious crimes to be lower proportionately and and moving away from from death by incarceration, which we fundamentally don't need. And it ends up turning prisons into into I mean, I hate to say it, it turns it turns them into old age homes. I mean, you have somebody yeah. 75, 80 years old, they're still alive and they're still serving out their sentence. There's some I mean, that's ex- I, and I hate to sound like it, like this, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. That's expensive. It's expensive to 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 take care of someone who has been incarcerated for forty years and they're still ticking. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because uh, among those older individuals, a lot of those folks are people who were sentenced in the eighties or nineties uh, and received sentences that we wouldn't even impose today. Um, that are just grotesquely long have nothing to do with justice. They've aged out of any likelihood of engaging in harm uh, and they need to come home. They're not receiving the medical care that they need in prisons and prisons can't afford to provide it anyway. That's why there's a fair amount of bipartisan support for the idea that we shouldn't have elderly people in prisons in almost all circumstances. And, and that's reflected in, in bipartisan bills like the First Step Act, which provided new ways for older people to come home. But we need things like second look laws that give everyone a second chance after a set number of years to go before a judge and see if they're safe to come home. We need things like compassionate release bills um, to provide ways for that increasingly aging prison population to be decreased because there are so many grandfathers, grandmothers behind bars who don't need to be there, who are suffering needlessly, um, who can safely come home to the community. Well, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's the conflict, right? I mean, you've got the, switching gears for a moment, these systems are, are not fit for purpose. They're out, they're outmoded. They are counterproductive in many ways. A lot of people would argue there's no reforming these things. They just have to be abolished. And, um, and, uh, and that's a really long, that's a really long process. I guess the question is, while you're working towards abolishing, what do you do in the meantime? And that's where these reforms come in. It's, it's tough because as I say, I I understand the argument for abolishing the carceral system and for abolishing police services and I support them, but it's like, what do you do in the meantime? 
I think all drugs should be legalized. Until we do that, there are some things we need to do, like harm re- with like you know, harm reduction interventions, because I want to say I don't want people to die in the meantime. How do you respond though to the um, to the argument that there is no reforming this; we just have to abolish it all? Yeah, I think the way that the sentencing project thinks about its work, especially when it comes to prison conditions, which isn't our focus, but is a thing that sometimes we we engage with, is we're rooted in the the needs and day-to-day reality of people currently behind bars. I mean, those are ultimately the people that we are answerable to. Um, and I always welcome outreach from folks, whether it's federal or state system, you're always welcome to contact me. And I do my best to answer questions when I get them, although we can't um, legally represent people. And and people have needs today. Even if you think that prison should be abolished, there are people in prison today who need access to medical care, um, who need safer housing, who just want to be safe. And I don't think that we can ignore those needs um, just because many of us as individuals may not want prisons to exist in the future. It's not something that that the sentencing project has a defined stance on. Um, but And so in the meantime, it's important that we lower the number of people in prisons, bring as many ho- people home as possible, and then um, fight for the lives of people who are still inside to make them better and healthier and give them a chance at coming home. As again, I think you folks do really, really wonderful work, really amazing work. And... Um... Can we go back for a moment to this? Um, let's uh, let's go back to the the the, the Halt Act, HR four sixty seven. So again, what can people? This is in the Senate Judiciary Committee, right? So and it's already passed the House. So basically, we need to contact our senators. Sure, I think it's great to contact your senators. Um, you know, the the Senate is currently in Democratic control. Um, although that control is precarious given the the number of Democratic moderates. And so, you know, I'm optimistic that we won't see the HALT Act move on its own, but the Senate has explored other ways of scheduling fentanyl analogs permanently. And so I encourage folks to, to reach out to their lawmakers and say that they want real solutions, um, that you're opposed to mandatory minimums, that you want harm reduction, and that you you definitely don't want to see halt pass through the Senate because it's important that lawmakers understand that while their constituents have fears about overdoses, valid fears about crime in general, that they want uh, to see more than them embracing the failed responses of the past, that we need to not repeat the 80s and 90s, that people want real solutions, that they have an appetite for that. And that that's what they're going to be held accountable for. Well, this is going to sound flippant, but it's really the difference between being able to multitask. We can multitask. I can work on abolishing the drug laws. I can work on abolishing the carceral system. And I can also work to support harm reduction programs and work to support sentencing reform. Is, why not? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think those are one in the same thing. Because criminalization of drugs harms people. It deepens stigma. It prevents people from accessing treatment. Um, I think we can look at international models and and pilot programs, uh, like even in Canada, they're exploring ways of providing people with a safe supply by providing them with a prescription heroin. 
And, and that's a way to entirely take the black market out of it and uh, to make sure that people are receiving a substance that poses a lower risk to their life. And that's, you know, not something that the sentencing project is, is saying we should implement today in the United States, but it's an example of the ways that prohibition itself harms people and criminalization uh, deepens all of the things that separate people from accessing life-saving care. And so if people are serious about saving lives, then that means investing in solutions and stopping harm um, by not leaning into further criminalization. Are there some other, are there some other, is there some other legislation that we should be aware of? Sure. So I think the HALT Act, and maybe this is the one of the biggest threats that's it's part of, is that it signals an overall carceral slide in Congress. Um, that as we're building up to the 2024 election, which many people are you know, building their platforms on crime narratives, we're seeing Congress lean back into tough on crime bills. Um, and as an advocate, it feels like whack-a-mole that every single week there is some sort of new bill that expands criminal penalties and liability. And lawmakers are doing that because they're hearing from constituents that they're very worried about crime. Uh, and I think it's important that that, that outreach, which is valid, um, be balanced out by people who are saying, I too am worried about the safety of my community, but I don't think expanding criminalization is the answer. I want real solutions, not just in the realm of drug policy, but in the realm of violence as well too. I want investment in a stronger, safer community that doesn't rely on over-policing and excessive punishment to do it. Things like violence interruption and strengthening community ties and fabric and not doubling down on the mistakes of the past even further. And so I encourage folks to, to have those broader conversations with their lawmakers. There will be constant bills um, leading up until the 2024 election and likely after that engage with these overarching themes. And it's really important that lawmakers hear from folks um, who aren't just interested in tough on crime responses, but who want real solutions. What's your web address? And, and also, how can people um, follow and support the work that you're doing, and, um, you know, the social media, that kind of stuff? Sure. You can find us online at sentencingproject.org. Um, we have a take action page there that gives folks ways to immediately engage and contact their lawmakers. I also encourage folks to um, sign up for our emails. We send a reasonable amount and they often include ways to engage and webinar opportunities. We even have one coming up this Thursday on capping um, maximum sentences at 20 years and folks can find that. And people can also follow us on Twitter at at sentencing proj. So that's at sentencing P-R-O-J. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter. It's my personal account that I use for work in part at Liz underscore Komar uh, with a K. And I hope that people are able to find us and see those opportunities to engage because ultimately it's the voices of individuals reaching out to their lawmakers that makes the biggest difference. 
That was my conversation with Liz Komar, Sentencing Reform Counsel at the Sentencing Project. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Many thanks to my guest, Liz Komar, and to the Sentencing Project. And thanks especially to you, dear listener. You make it all worth it. Find this and other installments of Prison Pipeline on the web at kboo.fm slash prisonpipeline. You'll also find a link there to subscribe to the Prison Pipeline podcast. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long!